I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. This past November 1st, South Texas College hosted the 7th Annual Binational Innovation Conference at the Technology Campus in McAllen. Experts from both sides of the border at the 2019 Innovation Conference analyzed changes in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, the impact of those changes, and ideas on how to best prepare for those anticipated changes in the USMCA. In this podcast, Associate Professor of Economics at University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, Salvador Contreras, talks about the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Trade Agreement, the USMCA, commonly referred to as NAFTA 2.0. I, I made a presentation uh, some couple months ago at, uh, in FAR on NAFTA, an update on NAFTA, and I was asked to expand on that. I had 10 minutes at that event to give my presentation, so I flew by it. So here are 45 minutes, I had a few slides on manufacturing, since manufacturing is in the title of the conference. Uh, but I'll try to give it a regional flavor to the presentation. So just as a, a way of outline, I'll talk about the US-Mexico uh, trends and when it comes to manufacturing, sort of to set up the mood uh, to motivate the presentation on, on NAFTA. Then I'll talk about how the evolution of NAFTA has taken place uh, with the uh, economic development in the, in the region. Now I'll talk about changes to NAFTA, and then what is at stake, and then I'll, I'll, end it, I'll end it there. All right, so I'll begin with talking about manufacturing, since uh, manufacturing is the talk of the, the, uh, the buzzword. Uh, employment numbers came out today, and uh, manufacturing wasn't so good. There was a GM strike, uh, affected, affected manufacturing numbers. But I think this number, the, this graph, helps us to understand that manufacturing in the US is live and well in the sense that output has been increasing. So there are two lines here. The line on the top is uh, output. It's an index of output in the United States from 1987. So that's the data that I have here from 87 to April of this year. And what you can see is that output has been increasing, obviously a decline here in the financial crisis, but it has been increasing. So total output in the, total output in uh, uh, manufacturing output has been increasing in the U.S. And the second line here is output per hour of work. And you can also see that workers in the manufacturing sector have become or continue to be productive or increasing productivity. So you've seen increasing output and you've seen an increase in labor productivity in the manufacturing sector. The second slide here is the is manufacturing average hourly earnings. So this line right here is the average hourly earnings from 1939 to September of 2019. And what you can see here is the average hourly earnings have been increasing. Roughly uh, $22 is the, uh, the average hourly earnings in September of 2019. I should point out that uh, this is manufacturing for uh, production, not supervisory workers. If you include supervisory workers, the number will be about $28 uh, or so an hour. So there's been an increase, about roughly 57% increase in nominal terms from the year 2000. And if you adjust for inflation, wages have increased by 5% from the year from the year 2000. So clearly this is a sector that has seen increases in wages uh, over time. Workers have been uh, more productive over time. And output in this sector has been increasing over time. Uh, here I include a couple of uh, statistics for local regions. So I have Laredo here, which is Laredo MSA, Brownsville Hollingen MSA, McCon Edinburgh MSA, 
El Paso MSA and the state of Texas. And over here I have the average weekly uh, wages. And what you can see here is that in Texas, the average worker in the manufacturing sector earns roughly about $1,700 a, a week, compared to, say, at El Laredo, which is $760, uh, Cameron County, about $1,100, McAllen, Edinburgh, uh, Hidalgo County, about $800, and El Paso, about you know, close to $1,000. So this, these differences in wages also reflect the differences, differences in composition of manufacturing uh, that exist in these uh, different regions. Clearly, Cameron County has a level of manufacturing that, ha that pays higher wages than do, uh, say, uh, Hidalgo County or even El Paso. Okay, the, 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 this next slide, however, is more indicative of the complaints that people have made about manufacturing in general in the U.S. And that is that manufacturing as a share of total employment has been declining in the U.S. This is data from 1939 all the way to September of 19. And what you can see here is that in, uh, in 1943, 39% of all employees were tied to the manufacturing sector. And that number is now 8.5%. If you include October numbers that just came out today, that number will be close to 8.3% or something along those lines. So it's in a decline. So manufacturing, although the output has been increasing uh, in value, it has been increasing because less employees are in that sector who are more productive and earning more uh, and more money, which suggests that the the technological know-how of these workers has been uh, has been increasing. So higher levels of skills are needed in this in this particular sector. On the uh, on the right here, I have El Paso, uh, the El Paso uh, County RGV, which is Cameron County and Hidalgo County, and Webb County. And this is, again, the share of manufacturing to total employment. And what you can see here that El Paso in 1993 uh, had 20% share of employment in the manufacturing sector. This has declined steadily since, the, since NAFTA, so here's 1994 here. So you can see that it's declined to about 5% in February of this year. The RGV started at about 14%, at least this is the earliest my data is here. 14% roughly in, uh, in, again, 19, uh, 1990, and it's declined to 3%, so very small. And then Laredo started around 3% in 1990, and it's a half a percent share of total employment. So for the border region, the Texas border region, manufacturing seems to have taken a, a, a nosedive or a steep decline as a, share, as a share of total of total employment. If we look at in the Mexico side, here is uh, manufacturing and uh, in Mexico, these are annual employment growth rates for the last 10 years. So this is Mexico, the, the entire country. This is the state of Tamaulipas, Matamoros, Reynosa, Nuevo Laredo, and Juarez, to, uh, just for comparison. This uh, line on the left here is the growth rate in total employees. So you can see that an average employment in the manufacturing sector has increased by 10.6% year over year for the last 10 years uh, in Mexico. The numbers are consistent across uh, in, in Tamaulipas and across the different municipalidades in Tamaulipas. Uh, it's much smaller in Juarez, which makes sense. Juarez has always had a much bigger uh, manufacturing sector, so I've seen a much lower growth. The second number here is hours worked, and you can see that hours worked has increased by roughly 
5.5% uh, annually for the last 10 years and, and Mexico as a whole. And again, the numbers are consistent with the rest uh, of the regions here. Again, Tamaulipas and its municipalities, including Juarez and Chihuahua. The second graph here are wages in dollars. So th I, just, I just took the uh, official exchange rate and converted the wages to dollars. And this is again Mexico. This is the first number is monthly. So the average Mexican over the last year earned about $530 a month in the manufacturing sector, or roughly about $2.70 per hour um, in Mexico. And again, Tamaulipas is very similar, about $2.80 an hour, about $538 a month. Matamoros had a much larger uh, hourly rate and monthly rate, as did Nuevo Laredo with uh, $3.20 and $605 per month. And then Juarez is again consistent with, with the rest of the other regions. So we've seen, we've seen that manufacturing output has been increasing. We see that labor productivity has been increasing. We see that wages have been in an in, uh, increasing in the United States. However, we've seen that manufacturing jobs have been declining and they've been going elsewhere. And part of the claim, at least in the last election, and it will be an issue in the current, uh, as we currently run up to the next election, is that these jobs are going elsewhere. They're going to Mexico, they're going to China, they're going elsewhere, and then it's leading to a large trade deficit. So if we look at our current account, our trade, uh, our trade balance, for example, we notice that Net exports in the United States have been obviously um, have been declining. So last year we uh, we had a, a trade deficit of roughly 800 billion dollars. We're likely to hit the trillion dollar mark in 2019. So the so so politicians look at these numbers and say, hey, you know what? We're allowing the jobs to leave uh, to these high paying jobs to leave this country. They're going to uh, lower uh, lower paying countries like Mexico that pay three dollars an hour, and uh, and they're leaving the twenty two dollars an hour jobs. Uh, they're leaving our shores. So so part of the reason why the Trump administration took out this whole idea of renegotiating NAFTA is in some sense to try to address this issue that has meant real job losses to real Americans who have been in this who have been in this sector. And part of the uh, reason of the renegotiation is to try to address some of these shortcomings. So next, let me just talk about the co-evolution of the RGV and NAFTA. So even though manufacturing jobs have been declining in the RGV, as most of the border region in, uh, in Texas, we have benefited in other ways uh, during the same period of time. So this first graph here is total trade with Mexico uh, in billions of dollars, so this is imports plus exports. And in 1994, imports plus exports were roughly $100 billion. In 2018, there were $611 billion. So that's a roughly a six-time increase in total trade between U.S. and Mexico. So clearly, uh, a rapid expansion of trade with these two countries. If you look at the Laredo district, you see that this has, uh, has had almost a seven-fold increase in total trade from roughly $46 billion to about $320 billion in 2018. So I should mention that we're part of the Laredo, Laredo district, uh, all the way from Brazil to, to Laredo, although most of the trade through the district happens in the port of Laredo. Okay, 
So some 52% actually uh, of total trade to the district happens through, uh, actually 52% of total trade happens through this district. That's what that number is. All right. In the same period of time, we see incomes in the region increase. So, for example, the personal income in the, in the RGB increased from 1994, $9 billion to roughly $30, $34 billion in 2017. So the RGB has seen a four-fold increase in total personal income, which is consistent with the real GDP number for, for the region, roughly around $30 billion. Roughly about $30 billion. Employment in the area has also increased, a doubling from around 200,000 uh, employees in 1994 to about 400,000 employees in 2018. The unemployment rate has been cut. Uh, it's down some 62%. Some, some areas had some 20% unemployment rates, uh, but we're, we're averaging roughly about, uh, the region as a whole is a rough, uh, averaging roughly about 6% unemployment rate much lower than it was, say, in 1994, where it was averaging around in the low, uh, in the low teens. So, so clearly an improvement in the uh, labor picture. We've also seen growth in wages. So wages, for example, are the 50th percentile. Those uh, in, in 2017, the 50th percentile in Hidalgo County and Cameron County earned roughly about $23,000 a year. So their incomes, the, those in the 50th percentile have seen their incomes increase by roughly about 25% in the 2005 to 2017 period. Those at the 90th percentile has also seen their increase in wages uh, roughly about uh, 20 percentile, uh, by 20%. So what does this mean? What does this mean? It means that those in the middle have seen their wages grow by more than those on the top likely leading to a decrease in income inequality in the region. So economic growth in this region has been more broadly shared uh, among members of, of our local communities. If we look at this by sector, we can see that the increases in economic activity in the region have decreased the poverty rates. So in 2017, the poverty rate stood at 32% in Hidalgo County down for 36% in the year 2000. So poverty rates have been declining in the region, again consistent with this idea that economic development in the region has been broadly shared across uh, different pockets of our population. The number 32% is quite consistent with the number of Cameron County. If we look at what sectors have led this growth, you'll see here that uh, wholesale trade has uh, increased by roughly 233% from 2000 to 2000 and 17, so uh, wholesale trade is being the big driver of growth here, but other drivers of growth are sectors that you would consi consider to be consistent with a growing population, and those include educational services, so sort of the services that STC provides, um, healthcare and social assistance, which uh, both of which have a, a grown by roughly you know under 200% over that 17-year uh, period. However, you'll notice down here that manufacturing has grown by 20% in a 17-year period, consistent with a shrinking share of total output uh, associated with manufacturing. This is a shrinking uh, sector. To, to the U.S. as a shrinking sector for the RGB. Uh, roughly, again, roughly accounting for roughly 3% of total employment in the region. 
And then overall, the uh, overall GDP has increased by about 120% over the 17-year period. Okay, so then this leads us to, to NAFTA. NAFTA has clearly has some has positive correlations with the economic development in, in our region. Clearly, there's this push to try to modernize uh, NAFTA, we call it NAFTA 2.0 or USMCA. And so I'll just mention a few of the things that have been discussed about modernization and then some of the shortcomings that the new, new USMCA or NAFTA 2.2 uh, still has and then, then talk about the, um, why it's important that this, this bill be passed. Okay, so, so many of these things I, I'm sure you've, previous presenters have talked about, but so there's this push to, uh, the new agreement calls for an increase in the auto content of 625 to 75%. And again, the idea is that more manufacturing jobs need to come to North America, and the U.S. is going to push for these uh, manufacturing jobs to come back to the U.S. by this second component here, which is that the new agreement calls for 45 uh, auto and 45% light truck to be produced by workers earning roughly about $16 an hour by 2023. And I just mentioned to you earlier that the average Mexican makes $3 an hour. So far, it's far away from this $16 an hour number. Uh, so it isn't clear how that's going to impact uh, manufacturing decisions to either bring back manufacturing back to the U.S. where labor, labor rates are much higher or, or deciding to pay Mexicans more. Uh, but from $3 to $16 is, 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 quite a, is quite a ways up. The new, the new agreement uh, opens access to the dairy market in Canada to American farmers, so it gives American farmers access to 3.6% of that market. It's not a lot, but it was a hard-fought battle to get them to 3.6%. It extends copyright uh, life of authors from 50 to 70 years. It also uh, increases the quota from the current 1.8 million uh, units for car cars to 2.6 million units. It increases uh, 30, uh, to 32.4 uh, billion for Canada and, uh, and 108 billion for Mexico quota imports on auto parts. And it extends patents from eight, uh, from 10 to eight years uh, on, on some pharmaceutical, uh, which, is a, uh, which is a big area of contingency in the current uh, democratic legis uh, legislation who are arguing that this is gonna lead to higher drug prices in, in the US. And then uh, it extends digital trade freedom protection. So for example, if, uh, if this were to go into effect, the Mexican government can't go to Facebook and say, hey, whatever data you're collecting on Mexicans, that data needs to be stored in Mexico. So this would prohibit uh, Mexico from uh, asking Facebook or any other American uh, tech firm uh, from doing that. And then the last thing that I have here is that there is a 16-year sunset law. So this would have to be revisited after 16 years. All right, so the, the U.S. Still, uh, needs to ratify this new agreement. Uh, it's, it's in the hands of Congress. Mexico already, already approved this piece of law. Canada has not approved this. Uh, Canada just had an election, Justin Trudeau uh, won re-election. And so it's likely that if the U.S. ratifies this, Canada is quite likely to ratify, ratify this. However, there's, there's some areas of, of dispute uh, of, uh, of why the the United States Congress has not yet approved this, and then there's just some shortcomings period to this new piece of uh, this new law. The first one is that the USMCA keeps much of the dispute resolution apparatus that existed under NAFTA. 
So if a, an individual or a country claims that the other country is, is being unfair, uh, you, uh, under, under NAFTA you, you, you were supposed to, or in theory, we were supposed to be able to bring this up to the, some, some NAFTA board, and this NAFTA board would hear your, your case and then you know, provide some sort of a ruling on, on the matter. However, when Mexico tried to, uh, when Mexico complained that, that it was not giving fair access to the uh, American sugar market, Mexico sued the, U, uh, the U.S. Uh, under these under the NAFTA rules, and the U.S. just simply refused to put anybody to uh, to, to the board, appoint anybody to the board, and there is no enforcement mechanism that forces the U.S. or any other members to put anybody on the board. And so eventually Mexico gave up the fight and no other complaints have been brought up under this rule. Much of that remains under the new, the new law, under the new, uh, the new, the new uh, agreement. The, the big area of contingency is this, uh, enforcement of labor and environmental protections. So Mexico just recently passed some new labor laws and environmental laws that are supposed to straighten uh, both of these components, particularly allowing for a higher minimum wages, uh, workers' ability to to unionize, to uh, to, uh, to complain, uh, file grievances. Uh, but, however, the democratic uh, the democratic um, Congress is is unsure whether there is any enforcement mechanism that is going to guarantee that these things uh, take place. Uh, similarly, with the uh, environmental uh, provisions, Canada maintains much of its uh, supply uh, management uh, system for dairy. And perhaps the weakest thing about any trade deal that the United States makes, and I think Trump, the Trump administration has made this clear, is that whatever agreement that we make is good so long as it is not inconvenient for the U.S. So we know that under Section 232, uh, the United States can claim that uh, a given industry is of national security interest. So for example, the United States imposed tariffs on steel and aluminum to most of the world, including Mexico and Canada, uh, so under NAFTA you would say, hey, you know, why are you imposing these, uh, these tariffs? However, the United States claimed that this was a, a vital national security and went ahead and imposed these regardless of NAFTA. And it isn't clear that even if Mexico, U.S., Canada eventually do, uh, do all uh, get ratified in their own respective governments, that the United States is not going to turn around and say, you know what, the auto industry is a vital national security interest to the United States and we're going to impose tariffs. So, um, so the United States has been holding off on this. Uh, they, they already have a report that has not been made public on the auto sector and whether it's a vital uh, security uh, interest. And there have been provisions made on quotas of both auto parts and uh, autos from uh, to be subject to no tariffs uh, for Mexico and Canada uh, to some some volume number, but it doesn't it does it does not exempt them from it. Okay, so what's at stake? So what's at stake is um, has has been discussed at quite length in in, um, in the news media. So there's a couple of estimates. These are somewhat uh, dated, but I, I think they help us think about. What's at stake if the United States decides either not to ratify or to walk away from the current NAFTA agreement? Because at the end of the day, Congress has no incentive, in my opinion, to rush this NAFTA uh, ratification in the current session. They only have a few dozen days left in the current uh, calendar for this, 
for this current year. And then once uh, they come back from recess over the, the Christmas break, it isn't clear that they want to touch this issue during a uh, presidential, presidential uh, uh, cycle. If that's the case, then Trump is left with one of two options. One is keep pressuring Congress to uh, act on this issue. Well, the second option is to say, you know what? We're walking away from NAFTA, whatever this is. Uh, if we walk away from it, it will force the hand of Congress to either vote it up or vote it down, uh, which seems to be quite a, it will likely be a very disruptive way to go about it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go past, uh, I wouldn't put it past the Trump administration. So what are we, some of these effects of moving away from NAFTA? So there's some estimates that US GDP would fall by half a percentage point that the Mexican GDP will uh, fall by almost a full percentage point, and that the Canadian economy will, uh, GDP will fall by half a percentage point. Uh, some estimates uh, suggest that in a few years, Mexico's GDP will be roughly two percentage points lower than it is today, and that withdrawal from NAFTA would not, not necessarily significantly impact the trade deficit that the United States currently faces. Again, a few slides ago, I mentioned to you that the US likely will face a trillion dollar deficit in the, current, in the current year. So it's been estimated that some 187,000 exporting jobs would, would be lost. The most affected states being Arkansas, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Indiana. And the sectors most impacted by this would be the auto sector, which is you know, the one that mostly contingency, agriculture, and just manufacturing uh, in general. It's estimated that there will be some 300,000 jobs and that it would cost American businesses and farmers roughly about $16 billion in new tariffs and that consumers will pay roughly about $7 billion in additional costs because of these tariffs. Regionally, uh, there's this paper by Cañas, Corrado, Gilmer, and Salcedo. Uh, Salcedo used to be a colleague of mine here at UTRGV until he left to attack the Monterrey. But uh, they wrote this paper a few years ago in which they look at the, the impact that employment in the maquila sector has on the U.S. side of the border. And one of their findings was that a 10% increase in the employment in the maquila sector in Reynosa has a 6.6% increase in employment in, in the city of McAllen. What they were suggesting is that, these, that the border cities are tight in the hip, as it were, uh, and that economic, the economic cycle on the Mexican side affects the economic cycle on the U.S. side. There is estimated that some 910,000 Texan jobs are supported by exports, and the Wilson Center estimates that some 5 million jobs in the United States are somehow tied to uh, trade exports with Mexico. Finally, I'll, I'll leave you with this, with, this, um, with this diagram. This is based on an article that Bloomberg put together a few years ago, but I think it helps us think about trade and trade with Mexico, because most of us, or a lot of people, seem to think that trade is just the, the finished car going across the border, going to the lot, and then us purchasing this Mexican-made car. But in reality, it's components that are produced in all corners of the world that go back and forth, different borders, at different stages of the production process until it gets, it becomes a finished good. In this particular article, they talk about a capacitor. It's a little cylinder piece that goes into a circuit board. 
So uh, in this particular example, uh, a, a firm out of Grand Rapids, Michigan buys a capacitor from Asia and ships it to Continental Colorado to one of its suppliers. The supplier ships that capacitor to Juarez where it is installed into a circuit board. The circuit board, because it is unbond, goes back to El Paso where it awaits shipment to Matamoros where it's going to be put in an actuator that will eventually be shipped to either uh, Ontario or um, Arlington where it's going to go into a seat that is going to allow the seat to uh, you know, fold back and forth so you can be more comfortable as you write um, to wherever it is that you're driving to. And then these seats are going to either be, uh, they're either going to be placed on a Ford Flex in Canada or they're going to be put on the, uh, on the Escalades, the Suburban Tahoes or Yukons in Arlington, Texas. So this example is just one component, one component out of tens of thousands of components that go in the manufacturing at any given car. And you can see here that when we talk about trade is the going the back and forth of goods, of components of goods that need to go back and forth before a finished uh, good, a finished car is, is manufactured. And that's what I have for you. This special feature is one of a series of four podcasts from the 2019 Innovation Conference that focused on changes in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. I'm Mario Munoz, reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service.